Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 8, says, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. But thou be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcomes shall not be hurt of the second death. Of the seven messages the Lord sent to the seven churches in Asia Minor, the message in our text that's delivered to the church at Smyrna is one of only two of those messages which is entirely Positive. Only one other church, the church at Philadelphia in chapter 3, escapes Jesus using a phrase like, but I have somewhat against you. He doesn't say that here to Smyrna or to Philadelphia. And if you want, you could glance over at chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, to that message at Philadelphia, and you'll see some similarities between these two churches. Both of them are being persecuted. Both of them are assured by Jesus that he sees those who claim to be Jews but are truly the synagogue of Satan, and both are encouraged with the promise of receiving a crown of life from Jesus. These two entirely praiseworthy churches are also the two most persecuted churches. And so perhaps the correlation that we should learn is that persecution has a refining effect and we see that effect on these two assemblies. As Jesus promised in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you are blessed when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. Persecution is not something that we seek out, but it's also not something to be avoided at all costs. In God's sovereign plan, persecution has a refining quality. The greatest difference between the church at Philadelphia in chapter 3 and the church at Smyrna here in our text is that the church at Philadelphia will find is promised deliverance, or at least they're promised strengthening during their trials. And the church at Smyrna here in our text is advised, you will suffer, some of you will be imprisoned, others will be required to be faithful unto death. And yet this is a letter of encouragement to this church to be faithful and joyful even when suffering and dying. And this is not a contradiction even though it appears that way to us. Jesus and in his infinite wisdom has filled this message with what would be apparent 
contradictions. I don't want you to miss this because it is just beautiful in the way that it's written. It's just sort of oozing with apparent contradictions which are easily reconciled when we embrace the perspective of Jesus himself. You can see some of these in verse 8. He is the first and the last. At the end of verse 8, he's, he was dead, but he's alive. In, in verse 9, the beginning of verse 9, they're poor, right? He sees their poverty, but he also says they're rich. At the end of verse 9, there are those who say that they're Jews, but they aren't really Jews. In verse 10, you don't have to fear what's coming. Be faithful to death and you'll receive a crown of life. In verse 11, the very ones who are tortured and put to death cannot ever be touched by Jesus as the second death. As we look at this text this morning, and remember verse 11, that this is what the Holy Spirit of God has to say to the churches, plural, and that would include us. Here's what we should learn. Our confidence in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead reinforces our resolve to live faithfully for him even when we face the prospect of our own deaths. Let's, let's begin going through this passage by looking at the city and the Savior. A little history to sort of put this into context Last week's message was to the church at Ephesus, which was the main city in Asia Minor. Smyrna is one of the only cities which might be able to come close to rivaling Ephesus. And today, as a matter of fact, while Ephesus is nothing but archaeological ruins, Smyrna still exists. It's the city uh, known today as Izmir, Turkey. In the first century, Smyrna had a population of about 200,000 people. It was perhaps the most beautiful city in Asia Minor, located about 35 miles north and just slightly west of Ephesus. It's also along the, the coast of the Aegean Sea. Smyrna had this sort of the San Diego of the day. It has this constant breeze coming off the Aegean Sea and going up ascending Mount Pegasus during the summer. It provided this kind of year-round comfort for the city's inhabitants. It boasted several temples, a large library, an athletic stadium, a, a massive public amphitheater. The coins that have been found that were minted in Smyrna, many of those coins call Smyrna the first in Asia in beauty and size. They're bragging, we're the best. We're the most beautiful city. We're the biggest city. It had temples dedicated to Apollos and Aphrodite and Zeus and, and many others. The city was widely known for its devotion to Rome and the advancement of Rome. So they even constructed a temple in honor of what they called Dia Roma or our God Rome. In 23 AD, so this would be during the lifetime of Jesus, there were 12 cities throughout the Roman Empire that vied for the privilege of being the site of the first temple dedicated to worshiping the emperor of Rome. They had a contest. Picture it like cities 
uh, trying to have a contest to see who gets to hold the next Olympics, except this one was who gets to build the first temple to worship the emperor, and Smyrna was chosen. And once that temple to worship the emperor was completed, the residents of Smyrna were expected to bring an annual sacrifice in the emperor's honor, and if they did not bring that annual sacrifice, they could expect to be tortured and executed. One of the sole exceptions to emperor worship was that there was an allowance made for the Jews. The Roman government recognized that the Jewish religion was ancient and it was a monotheistic practice. That is, they worshipped only one God. And so they, they received an exemption from the Roman government. They were exempt from emperor worship for a great time. That explains why the Apostle Paul, through the book of Acts, often expressed his faith in Jesus as the purest form of Judaism. And in Acts 24, he stood on trial before a Roman governor named Felix and said, they call it heresy, but I worship the God of my fathers, believing everything that was written in the law and the prophets. And so for a time, the Roman government saw Christianity as basically with, under that protective umbrella of Judaism. Now we'll see in a moment that the distinction between Christians and Jews was this powder keg waiting to explode. And we'll see how Smyrna with their you know, love of Rome and emperor worship was the match that was going to set that off. We don't know with certainty how the church at Smyrna started. It isn't recorded for us in scripture. Acts 19, though, tells us that how Paul came to Ephesus, 35 miles to the south, and that he remained there for about three years. And, and it says that all that dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And so almost certainly, that's when the, the people of Smyrna heard the gospel. The Jews heard their Messiah, and, and the Gentiles heard the good news of eternal life, and many of them believed. And so now, after the church was established, and, and friction with both the, the Jews and the idol-worshiping pagans was sort of building for the church, the Lord Jesus appears to the Apostle John, and he sends this message to the church at Smyrna, and he introduces the message with vital truths about himself. He is the eternal God. He, he begins by saying, these things saith the first and the last. You may have noticed last week I quoted from uh, Isaiah, who twice uses that phrase is an attribution for Yahweh himself. In Isaiah 44, 6, Yahweh says, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. But now in Revelation, Jesus, who is himself Yahweh, now claims this title. When he first appears to John in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, he says this already. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last. I'm he that lives and was dead, and, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Confidence that Jesus is the eternal God is going to prove to be a comfort for this church at Smyrna. 
He knows, verse 9, he knows their works and their tribulation and their, their poverty. He knows those things that are happening at that moment. But since he is eternal, since he is the first and the last, he not only knows what's happening to them at that moment, but he knows what's coming. The city of Smyrna might brag on its coins that it's the first in beauty and size, but, but Jesus is eternally God. He is first and last in all things. And not only is he first and last, he says he was dead but is alive. So just like being the first and last is asserting the, the deity of Jesus, it's a, a statement he, he is eternally God, being dead but now alive is reassurance that he is God made flesh. He's, he's human. He's deity robed in humanity. The resurrection of Jesus is the assurance this church needs in order to faithfully endure what was to follow. What the, what the Greek here says literally when, when we read which was dead and is alive what it says literally is that Jesus was dead but came to life. Death was what Jesus endured as, as he bore our sins in, in our place, but he, he suffered death. He was the, the object of, of hate and, and anger and outrage and insults and slander. He was wrongfully arrested, he was shamefully mistreated, he was unlawfully executed. But that death that Jesus experienced was just a brief fret, brief phase with a glorious conclusion. He was dead, but he came to life. Now do you see why the Lord sort of wisely reminds the Christians at Smyrna about who he is? He's the first and the last. He is the dead. He, he was dead, but he came to life. Because for the sake of his name, they are about to be wrongfully arrested and shamefully mistreated and unjustly executed. But that persecution is just a brief phase with a glorious conclusion. Our confidence in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead reinforces our resolve to live faithfully for him, even when we're facing the prospect of our own death. Let's look at this congregation and its concerns, because I do think there's some interesting symbolism to be found here in this message to the church at Smyrna, and it's not going to be readily obvious in our English translations, because it has to do with the name of the city. The word Smyrna, for which this city is named, is the Greek word for myrrh, the sweet fragrance that was used as a perfume and a preservation uh, for, for dead bodies. It was obtained by crushing this aromatic plant. So when the wise men, for example, came to worship the, the young Jesus, one of the gifts that they brought literally was smyrna, myrrh. It was prophetic of his death. Now the church at Smyrna is told that they're going to experience the, the crush of persecution and death. And Jesus says in verse 9, I know your works and tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. This contrast is reconciled only by seeing the world the way Jesus sees the world. 
This church who, unlike Ephesus, it, it has not left its first love. They embraced Jesus seemingly wholeheartedly. When they looked around at themselves, they could see that things were both much better and much worse than they appeared on the surface. And so one worship service, as they're gathered together, the messenger stands and says he has a scroll from the apostle John and it has a message from Jesus himself written specifically to them. And he reads it and Jesus says, I know your works and tribulation and poverty, but you're rich. But while they're rich, what is it that their riches look like? They look like people who had been rejected by their families. It looked like businessmen who had gone bankrupt because of their stand for Christ. It it looked like huddling in fear from the Roman soldiers that are determined to arrest them and for refusing emperor worship. No doubt it looked like empty seats in the assembly where they know the people who belong there, but some of them had already been arrested and maybe exiled, maybe executed, or maybe some of them had just escaped and gone to another region. Their riches don't look like riches in the world's sense. It looked like the worst poverty. But in the words of James, hasn't God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of his kingdom? Their work, Jesus says, is work for his sake. Doubtlessly staying faithful, proclaiming the gospel, worshiping together, loving the Lord. But the product of all of that work is tribulation and poverty. Tribulation, here's the word meaning pressure or to be crushed beneath a weight. Poverty, this is a unique word for poverty here. It describes being completely destitute, being beggarly, not even having the means for what is necessary. This church was experiencing genuine suffering for their stand for Christ. They're apparently being ostracized and opposed. In a city as large as Smyrna is, right? any of them in that assembly who had a, a profession, had a trade, had a, had a business, right? none of them are providing a service that couldn't be found somewhere else among the 200,000 people in Smyrna. And the church members were suffering financially, as a result of their stand for Christ. In John MacArthur's description of the church's condition, he said they, they, uh, the city accused Christians of cannibalism based on a misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper. They were accused of immorality based on an intentional perversion of the command to greet one another with a holy kiss. They were accused of breaking up homes for instances where one spouse would believe the gospel and the other would remain an unbeliever and reject the gospel. They were accused of atheism, which is interesting. That They were accused of atheism based on the fact that they rejected the notion that there were many gods. Christians were considered atheists. They were considered to be politically disloyal and treasonous because of their refusal to offer sacrifices to the emperor. You can easily see how hatred of Christians would result in this complete loss of 
social status and, and economic support. And sadly, one of the greatest sources for this suffering came from other people who claimed to worship Yahweh. The end of verse 9. I know the blasphemy of them which say, they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. The word translated blasphemy here isn't really translated at all. It's actually transliterated. That's where you take a word from one language and just make it sound like a word from another language. The Greek word here is blasphemia, which means to slander or use profane speech. And so don't think of it as blasphemy in the sense of how we usually use that word because when someone uses profane speech toward God, that's what we call blasphemy. But here in this verse, it seems like, look, the Jews of Smyrna were very unlikely to use profane speech toward God. They were using slanderous speech, blasphemia, toward Christians. And so many translations translate this as slander here. Though Jesus himself and all of his apostles were Jewish, though the vast majority of books of the New Testament were written by Jewish men, the New Testament opens with a a decidedly Jewish tone, right? The first words of the New Testament, this is the gospel of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Though Jesus was clear to the woman at the well that salvation is of the Jews, the Apostle Paul went on his missionary journeys proclaiming the gospel to the Jews first and then also to the Gentiles. Christianity is the purest form of biblical Judaism. And yet, for all of that, there is no group in ancient times which slandered Christians more than Jews did. It appears that much of the persecution and slander in Smyrna was coming from that source. And it shouldn't surprise us because that's what the Apostle Paul experienced, right? He was persecuted in in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, the Jews of the cities would get so angry with him that when he would leave and go somewhere else, they would follow and try to stir up trouble for him several towns over. The same kind of hatred is, is fuming in Smyrna. And Jesus says, I know those that are Jews. I know the slander that you're experiencing of those who say they're Jews but are really of the synagogue of Satan. Those are harsh but accurate words coming from Jesus. He said something very similar in John's gospel when he accused the Jewish leadership of being of your father the devil and the lusts of your father you will do. So listen, biblically speaking, we should have no doubt that Israel is God's chosen nation, but not all who descend from Israel are God's Israel. Proving your lineage as a descendant of Abraham doesn't come doesn't doesn't provide you with any spiritual currency. And when a Jewish person rejects the gospel of Jesus, they're turning their back on the very Messiah that was promised to them in the Old Testament and that they say they're waiting for. They have chosen sides, Jesus says. And in this case, they've chosen the side of Satan. But I also want to caution you, that term synagogue of Satan, 
has been misused over the centuries to promote a kind of hateful anti-Semitic sentiment among Christians. Look, there's nothing here that gives us permission for Jewish bashing stereotypes and, and hatred. We understand when we read the New Testament, Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. The martyr Stephen prayed for the forgiveness of his murderers. The apostle Paul, Paul who had been chased from city to city by Jews who had been uh, beaten and exiled and stoned and left for dead, still wrote that my heart's desire for my countrymen is that they might be saved. It should be the desire of our heart as well, especially as we'll see in Revelation, God has a plan for that. Now note the command of Christ in verse 10. Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried and you shall have tribulation 10 days. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. The Lord Jesus knows that the suffering of Smyrna is not only suffering in the present, but they have more suffering sovereignly assigned to them in the future. And it is not, note this, it is not his purpose to deliver them from that. Much like when he warned Peter and said, you know, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. He did not then go on to say, but I'm not going to allow it. He says, but I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail in the process. He didn't promise deliverance from trials of persecution. He promises strength through those things. And now he tells the church at Smyrna, don't be afraid of the suffering to come. That's not, don't worry about it because I won't let it happen. In fact, it's the opposite. Don't be afraid as I allow bad things to start happening. He even details what that suffering will entail. He says Satan's going to cast some of you into prison. That's going to prove a, a trial. Perhaps the idea there is being put on trial, or he might mean the word in the sense of this is going to test you. It's going to be a test of their faithfulness and endurance. And he prepares them for this test by saying, when you, when you pass this test, when you faithfully endure, you're going to receive a crown of life. And there's an echo from the letter of James here. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man that endures trials, the same word, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. As Jesus teaches the same call for endurance under trials, he also assures the church at Smyrna, there's a, a divine timetable that everything's happening on. The, the sovereign hand of God overrides all of their experience. He says, you shall have tribulation 10 days. Now we don't have enough specific information concerning what their experience was to be able to explain what is meant there by these 10 days. It might be 10 days until they are delivered. It might be 10 days until they are executed or just describing an unspecific 
symbolic short period of time where Jesus is saying, look, it's not going to last long. It's on God's timetable. It does seem from verse 10 that the idea is that some of them are going to be imprisoned and even put to death. Be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. That crown, by the way, isn't a, don't picture a metal, you know, a precious metal crown fit for a king. It's not that kind of crown. In ancient times, winners of sporting events like wrestling or or, uh, running were honored with a garland, a crown that was fashioned out of olive branches that was given to them as a symbol of their victory. Jesus saying, look, you're going to be crowned with the victory of life, eternal life. Make no mistake here, however bad the world gets, a Christian is in a win-win situation. What is the worst that the world can do to us? Well, it can bring us pain for a time, but it can't hurt your soul. They can persecute you to death, but death only ushers in eternal life. The Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is, if you remain alive, you can live for Christ. If you die as a result of this, you can live with Christ. Either way, you win. Now, unlike the church at Ephesus last week, when I said, well, we don't know for sure how the church at Ephesus heard this and what they did with it, whether they, whether they obeyed the message or not. With Smyrna, we do actually know. Christian history has a story to tell us because about 50 years after John sent this message from Jesus, there was this old saint named Polycarp who was the bishop, the, the pastor of the church at, Ephes, uh, at Smyrna. He was arrested for denying uh, the emperor. He refused to deny Jesus and worship the emperor. And so he was arrested. And I'm going to read to you from Fox's Book of Martyrs about what happened with Polycarp. After he was arrested and put on trial publicly, it says, the proconsul asked him if he was Polycarp. And when he assented, the former counseled him to deny Christ, saying, Consider yourself and have pity on your own great age and many other such like speeches which they were wont to make. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent. Say, away with the atheists. Then Polycarp, with a grave aspect, beholding all the multitudes in the stadium, waving his hand to them, gave a deep sigh, and looking up to heaven, said, take away the atheists. The proconsul then urged him, saying, Swear, and I will release you. Reproach Christ. Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The proconsul urged him again, Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Polycarp replied, Since you still vainly strive to make me swear by the fortune of Caesar, as you express it, affecting ignorance of my real character, Hear me frankly declaring what I am. I am a Christian. And if you desire to learn the Christian doctrine, assign me a day and you'll hear it. Hereupon the proconsul said, I have wild beasts and will expose you to them unless you repent. Call for them, 
replied Polycarp. For repentance with us is a wicked thing if it's a change from the better to the worse, but a good thing if it's a change from evil to good. I will tame you with fire, said the proconsul, since you despise the wild beasts, unless you repent. Then Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is soon extinguished. But the fire of the future judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly, you are ignorant of. But why do you delay? Do whatever you please. The proconsul sent the herald to proclaim thrice in the middle of the stadium, Polycarp has professed himself a Christian. Which words were no sooner spoken, but the whole multitude, both of Gentiles and Jews, dwelling at Smyrna, with outrageous fury, shouted aloud, This is the doctor of Asia, the father of the Christians, the subverter of our gods, who has taught many not to sacrifice nor adore. And they called on Philip the Asiarch to loose a lion against Polycarp, but he refused, alleging he had closed his exhibition. Then they unanimously shouted that he should be burnt alive. The people immediately gathered wood and other dry matter from workshops and baths in which service the Jews with their usual malice were particularly forward to help, which I'm just going to make as a side note is interesting because when you research this, it happened on a Sabbath day and that counts as work. When they would have fastened him to the stake, he said, leave me as I am. For he who gives me strength to sustain the fire will enable me also without your securing me with nails to remain without flinching in the pile upon which they bound him without nailing him. So he said thus, O father, I bless thee that thou hast counted me worthy to receive my portion among the number of the martyrs. And as soon as he uttered the word, amen, the officers lit the fire. Polycarp was content to believe He was in a win-win situation. He saw straight through the apparent contradictions of poverty and riches, of being joyful through suffering, of obtaining a, a crown of life when you are subjected to death. Because he believed that the one who was dead had, in fact, come to life. And he was the first and last. And so the, the first death is nothing to fear. Look at verse 11. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. He that overcomes shall not be hurt of the second death. The word of God, the gospel of Jesus is clear in presenting all those in this life with the opportunity to have eternal life. Repent of your sins. Trust Jesus as Savior and eternal life is yours. But it is equally clear that while death awaits us all, there is a death beyond death. It's the second death. It is, in contrast to eternal life, it's described as eternal death. It's the eternal torment and the fires of hell in which those who are ungodly will wish that they could die. It's that punishment which Polycarp said that caused him to not fear the fire that just burns for a short time and is extinguished. But his persecutors need to know there is a a fire of future judgment reserved for the ungodly. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we will never be touched by that second death. Now, is, is the message of the church at Smyrna 
a concern for us today? Because I know there are those who would say it's not, right? The, the time of persecution, like you just read about, has passed. But that certainly depends on where you live. I don't think you'd convince our brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan or Ukraine or, or North Korea or China that suffering is a thing of the past. It depends on where you live. And it also depends on when you live. You know that many settlers in North America came to escape religious persecution only to find that there was persecution here too, depending on if you moved into the wrong colony. And while some would argue that, well, we have nothing to fear now in the United States because it's a Christian nation. Listen, I'm going to choose to believe we're only in a brief time of reprieve from persecution. And I say I believe that because I believe Jesus who said in Matthew 24, 9, they shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Based on the biblical promise and just what we see around us with this increase of tribalism within our country, we have every reason to believe persecution is in our future. And while we have every reason to expect it, we have no reason to be afraid of it. We worship the first and the last. We worship the one who died but came to life. And our confidence in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead reinforces our resolve to live faithfully for him even facing the prospects of our own deaths.